The advances in astronomy over the past century are both evidence of and confirmation of the highest heights of human ingenuity. We have learned by studying the frequency of light that the universe is expanding. By observing the orbit of Mercury, that Einstein's theory of general relativity is correct. It probably won't surprise you to learn that Python and data science play a central role in modern-day astronomy. This week, you'll meet Jake Vanderplas, an astrophysicist and data scientist from the University of Washington. Join Jake and me while we discuss the state of Python in astronomy. This is Talk Python to Me, episode 81, recorded October 21st, 2016. I'm a developer in many senses of the word Cause I make these applications But I also use these verbs to make this music I construct it line by line Just like when I'm coding another software design In both cases, it's about design patterns Anyone can get the job done, it's the execution that matters I have many interests, sometimes conflict my creativity Welcome to Talk Python to Me, a weekly podcast on Python The language, the libraries, the ecosystem, and the personalities this is your host, Michael Kennedy. Follow me on Twitter where I'm at mkennedy. Keep up with the show and listen to past episodes at talkpython.fm and follow the show on Twitter via at talkpython. I'm very excited to announce this episode is sponsored by not one, but two new sponsors. And they both have excellent offerings for Python developers. Welcome GoCD by ThoughtWorks and Data School to the show. Thank you both for supporting the show. Jake, welcome to TalkPython. Thanks, good to be here. Yeah, it's, it's great to have you. I'm a huge fan of astronomy and science, and I'd love to talk to you about how Python and astronomy interact and all the problems you're solving. But before we get to those, let's start with your story. How did you get into programming in Python in the first place? Well, you know, I, can't, I came to programming relatively late. My, I had a little bit of early experience in like sixth grade with HyperScript, HyperCard, um, but didn't do much. I took a, took a small uh, programming class in high school and I, I didn't really do much programming aside from uh, evaluating physics stuff and Mathematica, simple things, um, until I was in grad school actually. So I, I arrived at grad school and um, started working with a, uh, with a research scientist who, who later became a faculty and um, I asked him, hey, what, you know, this was around 2006, I asked him, hey, what, what programming language should I use? Most of the people around were using um, IDL this uh, interactive data language. It's a proprietary scripting language that's similar to, to MATLAB or Python in some ways. And um, he was one of the only people using Python at the time. And he said, well, you should use Python. That's the future. Everyone's going to be doing that soon. And so I, I, I decided to do it, and I, I learned Python. Um, I taught myself Python over winter break. Uh, Sudoku was big at the time, so I wrote a Sudoku <laughs> solver, and that was my my way of learning how to do control flow and everything in Python. And then, yeah, that's great. I I really think writing those yeah I think writing those little games like that are a great way to learn a language or at least at least get started with it, right? Because the the problems are not so complicated. You don't need there's not a lot of interaction. It's not like well, how do I talk to a database? How do I do a UI? How do I call the web? Yeah. It was it was super fun and being someone who didn't really have a background any formal background in algorithms it was a a nice way to wrap my head around what sort of problems you can do in programming. So pretty much Python from then on you've been doing a lot of stuff you've been contributing to some machine learning libraries to the whole scikit area. Yeah so where where that came in is uh basically I I started doing all this work in Python and I was writing 
you know, hor- horrible little one-off scripts like most scientists do who don't have <laughs> who don't have formal training. And um, uh, a couple of years into my PhD program, I wrote my first paper. And the first paper was pretty interesting. It was using this uh, relatively new at the time algorithm, uh, a, a version of manifold learning called locally linear embedding. I was using that to explore some astronomical spectra. This algorithm was implemented out there. There was the, the paper introducing it had a, had a link to a little tarball of MATLAB code. Um, but I found pretty quickly that the code didn't scale to um, to the size of the problem we had, which was, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of spectra in several thousand dimensions. And so I spent a wow. summer um, basically looking at this uh, this science and nature paper, looking at this MATLAB software, and trying to figure out how to write a more scalable version of the algorithm. And what came out of that was um, this uh, C++ package. And I, I published the paper and, you know, did this standard thing of putting the C++ package in a tarball on my website. And I thought to myself, you know, this, this is ridiculous. The, ne- the next person who tries to use this in astronomy um, is going to have to spend, you know, they're going to have to hire another grad student to spend a summer and figure out how to implement this. So I, I started asking people about how to make sure that your code can be used by other people. And then I found out there's this whole catchphrase called reproducibility, open science and things like that. So that, that was my foray into, into reproducibility and open science. And, and as I was asking around, someone mentioned that there was this brand new package uh, that I, I, that might be interested in that algorithm called scikit-learn. And um, so I got in touch with uh, Guy Alvaraku, who was uh, uh, getting scikit-learn off the ground, and um, they thought it would be a good contribution. So I started, I think that was 2010 or somewhere around there, I started contributing to scikit-learn when I was really young. And, um, you know, I haven't looked back. I've, I've really been turned on by this idea of open and reproducible science by making sure your software products that come out of your research are actually well-documented and reusable. And um, this thing that was sort of a side project in the beginning has turned into most of what I do during my my day-to-day work. Isn't it funny how life takes those kinds of turns? Like mm-hmm. you, you plan to do one thing and you, you discover another and it, it really becomes something you're passionate about. That's cool. Yeah, and it turns out now I'm way more excited by general uh, software tools than I am about the astronomy research that, that drew me into grad school. Yeah, uh, it sounds a lot like my story. That's awesome. Let's talk just really high level for just a moment about machine learning. I know a lot of people out there are into data science and they know machine learning, but there's all sorts of listeners. So, I mean, like how people used to solve problems and they would use like statistics or Mm -hmm. other types of things, but then this whole machine learning seemed to formalize it, bring some algorithms together, like kind of give us an overview of what the whole story there is. Yeah. So what I, I, Whenever I introduce machine learning, I always uh, emphasize the fact that it's just a set of models to data. You know, when you fit a line to data, you're you're doing machine learning. When you when you take two clumps on a two dimensional plot and draw a line between them to say this side is one type and that side's the other type, that's a form of of machine learning. And um, 
Where machine learning gets powerful is these algorithms that you can do by eye or by hand in two dimensions, like drawing a line on a piece of paper. Um, once you formalize those algorithms, you can scale them up to large number of points and large number of dimensions. You said you have a thousand dimensions in your previous problem. Like you're not doing that by eye, right? Yeah, yeah. So you know, a thousand <laughs> dimensions. The the equivalent is fitting a 999 dimensional hyperplane to split things into two groups, and you can't really do that by eye. But the the key is that machine learning is nothing more complicated than fitting these models to data in a way that scales to large data sets and to uh, to high dimensional data sets. And of course, it grew out of it grew out of artificial intelligence and statistics in some sense. But the, I think the the core distinction between the, the machine learning way of doing things and the statistics way of doing things, this distinction is put together is is uh, described really well in this uh, paper by Leo Bryman called Statistical Modeling, the Two Cultures. The overview summary of that is that, um, you know, in, the, in classic statistics, you're building models where you care about the model parameters. Like you fit a line to the data and the slope is telling you something fundamental about the world. Whereas in machine learning, you fit a line to data and you're not so much interested in the slope. You're just interested in what that line can tell you about new data that you, you know, you want to predict something about. I see. So a lot of machine learning is about prediction in the future. Like you create a model and then you want to ask it questions. Yeah, absolutely. And you're, you're learning something about un, unknown data. I mean, the, the distinction is not completely black and white there, but I think it's a, it's a useful way to think about machine learning versus statistics. Yeah, that is an interesting way to put it. What are some of the major tools in Python that people use? Yeah, so uh, scikit-learn is one of them. This is the um, Python package that's built on, on NumPy and SciPy and kind of uses the classic tools. It's, it's really nice for, for doing sort of small to medium scale machine learning and uh, modeling problems. Uh, it doesn't have a, a particularly good scalability story. There are some ways to kind of parallelize uh, certain operations within Scikit-Learn, but if you want to go to out-of-core data and things like that, there 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 are other ways to do this. Um, so Scikit-Learn, to be honest, is for for the bulk of what I end up doing in my work, um, I, I can use Scikit-Learn, and and for scaling to large data sets, often. In the work I'm doing, I'm doing kind of massively parallel stuff where I can I can split the data into chunks and um, run a small scikit-learn algorithm on one of those chunks and you know loop through them that way or parallelize them that way. Yeah, that makes sense. So maybe you're looking at some large part of the sky and you could break it into little grids or something. Yeah, exactly. We're we're I'm often looking at things object by object rather than trying to do things all at once. Um, if if you need to do larger models that are doing things all at once, there are these um, interesting libraries recently built to, around things like Spark and TensorFlow. I'm not as experienced with those, but um, but the the TensorFlow stuff is, is interesting and and in particular there's this uh, skflow package that I've been rather intrigued by that kind of builds a scikit-learn API around a TensorFlow backend. Oh, that sounds like that's worth looking into. That sounds cool. And there's also there's also a, a PySpark, which is interesting. Um, so we're I'm in the process right now. It's been kind of fun. I'm uh, working with some computer scientists and some neuroimaging people and um, some database specialists to put together a comparison between uh, a number of Python-oriented approaches to doing scalable computation in a scientific setting. Um, and so hopefully that paper will be coming out in the next several months. Oh, yeah, that sounds really interesting.
give us some examples of how this how this whole machine learning story applies to astronomy. So like what types of problems or things are people doing with this? Yeah, so astronomy, we have a lot of areas where um, we want to predict certain aspects of things. So so one example, um, just to be concrete, is let's say we're, we're looking for uh, the distances to distant galaxies. And, and the distances or, or redshifts of, of galaxies are important in constraining things about our, our understanding about the cosmology of the universe, the structure of the universe. But um, getting a, an accurate distance to a galaxy is an expensive observation. You have to use, you have to do a, a spectral observation, which basically, you know, you, you, you look at an individual object and you split the light from that object using like a diffraction grating into, uh, into its whole spectrum, you know, red on one end, blue on the other end, and a thousand bins in between. And given something like that, you can isolate certain emission lines or absorption lines and calculate its redshift, which, uh, which is similar to its distance, and that's really, really accurate. But the problem is it's incredibly expensive because you have to look at individual objects and line up these diffraction gratings one by one. And um, when we're looking at, when we're just taking pictures of the sky, we're getting thousands or, or millions of galaxies a night, um, and, it's, and we, we don't have the resources to take a spectrum of all of those. So the question then is, can you, um, can you take a small set of objects where you have these very detailed spectral observations and um, learn something about them so that you can predict what the redshift might be from a more coarse uh, photometric kind of, kind of picture observation of them. Um, and, and this maps pretty well onto a machine learning model, right? You, have, you, you take a picture of the whole sky, um, and so you get data about each object that way at a coarse level. And then you take spectra of a certain collection of objects, and that gives you finer detail, uh, more information about a subset of them. And then you want to build a model that can predict that, you know, that more information, the redshift and the distance for, for all the rest of them. So at, at first glance, machine learning seems to map pretty well onto uh, astronomy data. The thing that's difficult about it in practice is most machine learning models assume some sort of uh, statistical similarity between your training set and your unknown set. And in astronomy, unless you specifically design it that way, it's difficult to get that statistical similarity. So, for example, we tend to have spectra of nearby bright objects because they're easier to take spectra for. If you're looking at distant, faint objects, the noise characteristics are different, the statistical distributions are different. So uh, a straightforward machine learning approach to that will uh, will miss some things, and you might not, not even know you're missing things. Yeah, I can imagine. You know, one of the things that just blows my mind is that we can see things so far away and so small and effectively so far in the past and still make intelligent <laughs> statements about them. Yeah, you know? yeah. It's, it's it, pretty it's, amazing. It's, yeah, unbelievable, some of the things you guys are doing. And the, the thing that blows me away, actually, about astronomy and astrophysics in general is the fact that these these laws that we discovered in the laboratory here over the course of the centuries um, actually apply to what we see out there 10 billion light years away, right? <laughs> um, and it's, it's not just that we're assuming they apply, it's that we can actually test and confirm that they apply. Um, one, one example is, you know, there's all these scientists in the 18th and 19th centuries studied the behavior of gases, 
right? What happens if you blow up a balloon and how fast does the air come out? And, and all that led to, uh, led to this formalized field of thermodynamics and statistical mechanics. Um, and as you, as you go into, as you go into more detail, like what happens if you're, if you're looking at ionized gases and things like that, we're learning, we learned all this stuff in the lab. And then in the mid 20th century, um, figured out that the cosmic microwave background, this, this light echo of the Big Bang, actually comes from, uh, comes from a plasma in the early universe, and we can understand the properties of the plasma there by the same laws. And the reason that we know that the universe is 13 point, you know, I, I can't remember the decimals, but 13 point something billion years old with a very, uh, very good accuracy. One of the reasons we know that is because we understand the thermodynamics and statistical mechanics of the plasma in the early universe and can compute what that says about the cosmic microwave, microwave background. And that story right there is just fascinating to me. Yeah, it's, it's totally fascinating. And what I think is also fascinating is the guys who discovered it, was that Bell Labs in New Jersey? I think. Yeah, that, yeah. Yeah, the, the guys who discovered that whole cosmic background radiation weren't looking for it. They found it on accident and it was like yeah, they, in their way, right? Yeah. And they, uh, their, their first hypothesis, I guess, was that it was pigeon droppings on the detector. And once they cleaned off all the pigeon droppings, they had to, had to figure out it was something else. And yeah. So they got the, they got the Nobel prize for finding static in their instrument and realizing the static was significant. <laughs> yeah. Normally that would be a problem, right? Yeah. yeah. You want to get rid of it. Very cool. And so uh, you gave a really interesting talk at PyData, I think 2015. I'll be sure to link to the, the it's up on YouTube. I'll link to the video. Mm -hmm. You talked about how distance is super important in astronomy. And it relates to many of these big ideas that we hear about if, if we're sort of paying attention, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Distance is, is fundamental to a lot of what we do. And it's also really, really hard to figure out. I mean, if you, if you think about just looking at a, a dot of light in the sky, how do you, how do you tell how far away that is? And so a, a big part of the, um, the story of astronomy over the past couple of centuries has been people figuring out how to determine how far away things are. So the first step that, that people figured out is uh, we can do it geometrically. You know, the, the same way as if you put your finger in front of your eye and close one eye and the other, your finger seems to, te seems to jump around in, in front of the background. That's, that's called parallax, and we can use a, a similar type of trick to find the distance to nearby stars uh, because the Earth is on one side of the sun in June and on the other side of the sun in December. And if you compare what the nearby stars look like compared to the background stars in June and December, you see them jump back and forth, and you can use the geometry of that to figure out the distance to those stars. I see. So you, you measure the sky, and you basically see which ones kind of move more and which ones are more or less fixed. And then yeah. based on the parallax, you can say, well, these ones that move, they're five light years away or something. Yeah, and you can calculate that based on the angle and what we know about the Earth's orbit about the sun. But that only works to within, uh, well, up, up until a couple months ago, it was within um, maybe a, a few thousand light years. Uh, there's this Gaia mission. The data was just released uh, in the last couple of weeks. And that, um, one of the things that Gaia can do is it's going to give us really accurate parallax distances out to, um, out to, to previously un, unheard of distances. So we're going to really be able to figure out the three dimensional structure of the stars, um, in our galaxy. 
But that parallax is not going to work when you go out to, um, to more distant galaxies. So you have to come up with other, other ideas. And one of the ideas that's been really fruitful is this idea of standard candles. If I, if I stick you on a street in the dark and I turn on a 100-watt light bulb and I put it right next to your eye, it's really bright. But if I put it two blocks away down the street, it's really dim. And that, um, that brightness and dimness, you, you can compute that uh, because the, the apparent brightness is, uh, is attenuated by a factor of 1 over the distance squared. Um, so if you know that if you look at a, a light two blocks away and you know that it's a 100-watt light bulb and you have a very accurate photometer, you can, you can compute exactly how far away that, that light bulb is. And this works with stars, too. If we know the exact brightness of a star, the exact intrinsic brightness of a star, and we look at its apparent brightness, we can, we can compute the distance um, very easily. Now, the trick there is you need to know the, uh, the intrinsic brightness of the star. Yeah, um, that, that, that's the kind of stuff that amazes me because <laughs> you, you look out at these things super far away and how do you know their intrinsic brightness, right? Yeah, it's, it's, and it's really difficult. One, one thing you can do is build off these uh, things we learn from parallax and you can look for certain classes of stars that are always around the same brightness and you know, you know their brightness when you know the parallax distance. Um, and then you look for the same class of stars uh, that are further out and um, you can sort of infer their distance that way. So this is why it's kind of called, in astronomy, it's known as the distance ladder. You know, we have, we have these direct methods that lead to more indirect methods of distances as we go further and further out. And one of the coolest stories of, the, of this distance ladder is back in the early 20th century, there was this woman named, named Henrietta Leavitt. And she was looking at variable stars. So there, there are stars out there that get brighter and fainter with time. And she was looking at particularly at this class of stars called Cepheid variables. It was um, named after uh, the fourth brightest star in the constellation Cepheus. Um, and she found something curious when she when she was looking at the um, at the variation of these. They would get brighter and fainter with a period of uh, you know somewhere between a day and a couple days, something like that. And she, she found that these, the, the period of how fast they got brighter and dimmer um, was related to their intrinsic brightness. Um, and so there's this, there's this nice plot where she shows that. And it's this, it's this roughly linear trend between period and intrinsic brightness. And that's really nice because then you can, a period is something that you can find out in the, uh, in the sky. So she looked out and, you know, found all these stars and confirmed that the period and the intrinsic brightness were related. So then Hubble came along, and you've probably heard of Hubble from the Hubble Space Telescope. And what he did is he used the um, telescopes available to him and found more and more of these stars. And based on this period brightness relation was able to uh, estimate the distances to all these stars. And the, the thing that really completely blew open our understanding of the universe was when Hubble pointed his telescope at one of the uh, what they called them the spiral nebula. So there were these spiral shaped clouds um, out in the out in the sky that for a long time people thought were just clouds of, of dust in our galaxy. But Hubble found individual uh, Cepheid variables in the, the Andromeda spiral nebula and found that it wasn't in our galaxy. It was, it was about two and a half million light years away, farther away than anything we, we ever would have imagined existed. So in, in one fell swoop, the, the study of variable stars led 
to us understanding that the universe is orders of magnitude bigger than we ever imagined. That's really amazing how that, that ladders up there, right? And beyond that, we also learned that the universe is not contracting or sort of static, but it's, it's sort of going away from itself and accelerating, yeah, right? Yeah, so the, the same, at the same time, he, was, he found that um, not only were these galaxies really far away, but if you looked, he looked at all these galaxies, um, they, they were the spiral nebula, and, and now we know them as galaxies because we know they're, they're separate, separate groups of stars. Uh, he looked at all these and he found that there was a relationship between how far away they are and how fast they're receding from us. We can, we can measure their recession velocity by looking at the redshift of the light. And it's kind of like um, the, the Doppler shift the, when, a, you know, when a siren goes, goes by you, you hear it high at first and it passes and it goes low. You know, this... <laughs> yeah. And um, that same Doppler shift, we could, we could see that the light was shifting to a lower frequency, just like the sound shifts from, to a lower frequency when a car goes away from you. And um, you can measure, measure the velocity. And he found this relationship between the distance and the velocity, which basically describes uh, a uniformly expanding universe. And, um, you know, right around the same time, Einstein's, uh, Einstein's predictions, uh, general relativity, people were realizing that the general relativity equations that describe uh, gravity and explained the orbit of Mercury, among other things, um, you could you could solve those in a way that led to an expanding universe. So it was another confirmation of, of general relativity. So and this was all based on on finding distances to galaxies. This portion of Talk Python to Me is brought to you by GoCD from ThoughtWorks. GoCD is the on-premise, open-source, continuous delivery server. With GoCD's comprehensive pipelining model, you can model complex workflows for multiple teams with ease. And GoCD's value stream map lets you track changes from commit to deployment at a glance. GoCD's real power is in the visibility it provides over your end-to-end workflow. You get complete control of and visibility into your deployments across multiple teams. Say goodbye to release day panic and hello to consistent, predictable deliveries. Commercial support and enterprise add-ons, including disaster recovery, are available. To learn more about GoCD, visit talkpython.fm slash gocd for a free download. That's talkpython.fm slash gocd. Check them out. It helps support the show. I think one of the things that's super interesting about this is, you know, this concept of variable stars and the work that woman did was very manual, right? Like she, she would look at pictures and, and so on. Yeah. She was measuring the way they measured brightness of stars back before CCDs is, um, you were, you're looking at photographic plates and, um, the brighter something is, the more it's saturated. So you'd have to do a, a detailed measurement of the size of the dot on your photographic plate 
and <laughs> use that to compute the brightness of the star. It's just, it's, it's amazing to me that any of that work got done given how yeah, easy we have it now, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's such a different world. But at the same time, we've kind of answered those questions for the, the simple, small ones we focused on. And mm-hmm. now the amount of data that you guys are getting is so much larger that you have to start applying these machine learning algorithms just just to deal with it, right? Yeah, absolutely. So the uh, project I've been involved in that's um, just starting to get off the ground, first light is going to be in a couple of years, is this project called the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope. And you can think of this as a... Um, Overview is it's a it's a ten year movie of the entire southern sky, so that it's a very wide field camera that's going to be on a mountaintop in Chile in the Atacama Desert, one of the driest places on the Earth, so we don't get can don't don't run into much weather, um, and it'll be able to scan the entire night sky every three nights or so, um, so get about a hundred hundred full sky frames in this movie per year, and then do that for a decade. And the, the big thing this is going to open up is the more of the time domain. Um, you know, t- typically, typically astronomers tend to treat the sky as this fixed thing. There are these, there are individual, individual times where we, we look at specific regions of the sky and see what, what has changed. But we don't really have a global survey yet of, uh, of the time domain of the sky. And LSST is going to do this on a huge scale. We're going to have 10 years of data. Um, with something like 30-ish terabytes per night of, of data coming through. Um, with a, a, so the full survey size is going to be in the hundreds of petabytes by the end. Um, so it's, it's really, it's, it's bigger than anything that's been done before. And it's really forcing astronomers to confront these old uh, tool chains that they've had that don't really scale anymore. You know, the stuff that you could do, you could sit down, 10 years ago, you could sit down on a computer and, and download, um, you know, all of the Sloan Digital Sky Survey and do some sort of local analysis. I don't, I don't know if, even in 10 years, I don't know if we're going to have um, peta- hundreds of petabyte size uh, hard drives in our laptop, right? We're going to have to do it a little bit differently. Yeah, that's really a lot of data. And the other thing you had said that was interesting is this data is being collected for everyone, which means that it's not specifically focused on some type of uh, answering some type of questions. So the, the techniques and the tools and the, like the machine learning stuff you have to apply has a greater challenge. Yeah, it has to be, it has to be really, really general because um, this data, like you said, it's, it's collected for everyone. There's not, there's not really specific uh, areas that, that it's addressing. It's one of these discovery class missions similar to, to the Hubble Space Telescope. You know, you, you put it out there and you hope that the things you find are things that you're not going to be able to predict at the moment. And what that means is that, uh, is that any particular obs- for, for any particular science case, you're not necessarily going to have the, have the best data. You know, if you're, if you're designing LSST to do one thing, like look for variable stars, you would do it very differently um, than if you're doing it in general, because you, ha- you have to balance all these different uh, different concerns and different uh, areas of research. So, for example, going back to variable stars, the, one of the challenges with LSST is that rather than just observing in the same uh, region of the spectrum every night, that you'd want to do if you want to, you know, if you want to look at a variable star and see how the brightness changed from one night to the other, you'd want to take the exact same observation. But LSST is not taking the exact same observation every night. It's it's getting a, 
a breadth of different different uh, bands throughout the spectrum, everything from infrared to uh, in the near ultraviolet. And w- what that means is that, um, that that's really good for things like uh, determining the redshift of galaxies via machine learning, right? But it's very it tends it's actually very bad for uh, finding variable stars because you, now you have to model not only the variability but you have to model the spectral variability over the course of time too, and it, it gets much more challenging. So, so as this data grows and, and as the um, heterogeneity of the data grows, um, having, these, having these sophisticated algorithms, whether it's machine learning or some sort of forward modeling or some sort of non-parametric modeling, uh, that's becoming increasingly important. And it's things that need to happen kind of in real time while you're uh, while you're observing the sky because we want to we want to be able to alert people within a minute or so if something changes on the sky and we find an interesting object there's going to be this alert stream so that somebody sitting at a telescope in a, another part of the world could point their telescope there right away and catch this interesting phenomenon. Yeah, wow! I, I'm really excited to see what comes out of this. That's a uh... That's a big project. Yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be huge. It's really um, gonna going to define the way that we do astronomy over the over the course of the twenty twenties. Yeah, for sure. So let's let's talk about some of the libraries that you might be using to answer questions here. So the two major ones, and I guess one is kind of a subset of the other, is AstroPy and AstroML. Yeah, so AstroPy is actually the big community standard, and that that it's been a really cool project to watch and to be involved in because it, you know, started a few years ago where there was these everyone had their their own little Python library to to do things. This this grew out. I should I should step back. Uh, Ten years ago, most people were using IDL, and so the community evolved these sets of routines and IDL to do a lot of the common tasks. And as more and more people moved over to Python because of, uh, of well, I'll go into that later, but as more, <laughs> as more and more people moved into Python um, because of its advantages, uh, people built a, a whole bunch of different tools to do different things, and it was this sort of smattering. And the Space Telescope Science Institute people, the, the folks behind Hubble, came together in around t- 2012, 2011, and said, we should consolidate all this and create one Uber package to rule them all. And AstroPy was born, and it's actually, uh, it's a, it's, it's actually accomplished its goal. Pretty much everyone is using it now. Um, so that, that's an incredible package and really, really well done and, and awesome software engineering behind it. Uh, lots of buy-in from the community. Um, AstroML is something that I started along the same time. Uh, I, I didn't have as broad of a vision, but I just wanted to uh, bring together uh, functionality and examples of doing machine learning specifically for astronomy um, in Python. And we actually wrote the package to accompany our book, which was... Uh, it's a Princeton Press book on statistical modeling, machine learning, um, and and et cetera in Python for astronomy. Yeah, that's great. And so what kind of things do you cover in your book about like what problems are solved or presented or data sets, things like that? Yeah, in that book, we uh, what we do is we walk through a lot of the... Um, the it's, it's meant to be a, an intro graduate text on statistics and machine learning uh, with astronomers in mind. So we walk through all the, all the basics of data mining, um, statistics, machine learning, 
all the while using these uh, uh, data sets drawn from astronomy and problem situations that astronomical researchers will run into. And um, along the way, we also provide code snippets and provide figures with the full figure source available online so that if people want to actually use these techniques, they can um, grab our scripts and start modifying them from there and see where it goes. So AstroML is what drives that a little bit. Um, yeah. In our next edition of the book, which might happen in, in the next year or so, uh, my big task is going to be to incorporate AstroPy because we actually wrote that book before AstroPy existed. And so it's already a little bit outdated, and I want to make make sure that everyone's – I'm pointing everyone to the tools that are in AstroPy. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So you created the book, and you're like, we really should make this like a package that people can just use, mm-hmm. the, the techniques and whatnot, and then now it's a little more mature, right? Yep, yep. Do you know of any discoveries that were done as a result of AstroML? Um, it's been it's been referenced in a, in a lot of papers. I don't, I don't know offhand if there's anything that were that, that came exactly from that, but um, but it's definitely been used for for a lot of the, the incremental building of knowledge over the last few years, and it's been fun to see that. Yeah, I'm sure that's really rewarding. That's awesome. Yeah. Another big thing um, in the astronomy community is the is forward modeling and Bayesian approaches. So I I alluded to earlier the fact that machine learning is a little bit difficult because uh, the statistical similarity of the samples is not always um, is not always a good assumption. So the way that astronomers tend to get around that is to use forward modeling. So you you have some. You have some model for your system based on the physics that you know, and you can you can look at the noise properties and the selection effects of your observations to constrain that model, and then that model will tell you about um, tell you about the data that you observe, and th- and that tends to be tends to work really well in a Bayesian setting. So um, a huge push in the last few years in astronomy has been to use tools like Markov chain Monte Carlo to do Bayesian analysis and to do these really large high dimensional uh, high dimensional models to to learn about the data. So there there's one package that's been um, pretty impactful there is the MC package, E-M-C-E-E. And that that's a, a package for doing Markov chain Monte Carlo, do, doing uh, Bayesian estimation uh, written by an astronomer and used for it's been cited, I think, thousands of times in the astronomy community because so many people are doing that style of analysis. Yeah, that's really amazing. Yeah, I guess the whole how do you solve these prediction problems more quickly is really important. And Monte Carlo scenario or simulations are, are really good at that. Mm-hmm. And particular, particularly the uh, the Bayesian approaches. Where machine learning tends to be more of a frequentist approach and and. Um, the Bayesian forward modeling approaches give you some advantage in this, when you when you have when you have some a priori idea about what's driving your observations. You can you can take advantage of that more in a Bayesian context than in a machine learning context. So you wrote this book, the statistics, data mining, machine learning, and astronomy, and you mm-hmm. survived that process, and you decided <laughs> to to come back for more. And you're just about to finish up a book, right? Another one. Yeah, I'm just I'm finishing one that's uh, it's an O'Reilly book. So think you know, cute little animal on the cover. You've probably seen what, that. What's your animal? <laughs> the animal is a is a Mexican bearded lizard. <laughs> nice. um, 
Yeah, this one is the Python Data Science Handbook. So the, the reason I, I did this is I, for years I've been approached by people who are you know, in research or in tech or something like that, and they say, hey, I know how to use MATLAB, I know how to use um, R, but I want to I learn how to do Python, and I want to learn how to analyze data in Python. And I hadn't found a really good resource to point them to, except for kind of collections of videos online. Um, so I decided to write it, and um, it's taken... <laughs> Much longer than I thought because because life gets in the way, but um, but we're we're at the point where it's I'm I'm doing the final edits right now, so it should be released pretty soon. Yeah, that's great. Uh, congratulations on that. Thanks. I'll be sure to link to it as well from the show notes so everyone can find it. And one thing I'm particularly excited about this book I I wrote it all in the form of Jupyter notebooks and um, got the publisher to agree to let me make the Jupyter Notebooks public. So you can buy the printed version of the book, or you'll be able to go on GitHub and just work through the Jupyter Notebooks um, for free. Wow, that really is cool. Yeah. Okay. But I'm you should buy go, the book yeah. to, <laughs> yes, to support but, all the work. That went. <laughs> definitely support the project. That's cool. But it's very cool that the the basically it's a live book, right? Like if you have the data and you have the code and you can run it, you can explore it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we're we're working on too uh, getting a, a hosted version of it up there on on some cloud service, so you could just basically click and have a have a live executable textbook at your fingertips. Yeah, it's interesting. I think a lot of things are going that way, right? the The days of just a printed book and a zip file are are fading. Let's say. Yeah, yeah, because there's there's so much better ways of doing it now. This portion of Talk Python to Me is brought to you by Data School. Have you thought about making a career change into the exciting world of data science, but don't know how to get started? Data School helps data science beginners like you to analyze interesting data sets and build machine learning models to predict the future, all using Python. You don't need a PhD or a background in mathematics, just a keen interest in using data to answer your questions. Data School has created a data science learning path exclusively for Talk Python listeners. So visit talkpython.fm slash dataschool to launch your data science career. Data School is run by my friend Kevin Markham, so I know that you're going to get excellent content. Check it out at talkpython.fm slash dataschool. So let's talk a little bit about where you work and what you do, because you are breaking some rules around (laughs) how people in academia and scientists work with programming technology and how programmers are involved. And I think that's really interesting. So you're at the University of Washington, but you're at this place called the eScience Institute, right? Yeah. So I'm in the eScience Institute. I've been here since the beginning of 2014. And um, the goal of the eScience Institute is to uh, to basically further uh, further computational research around campus. And so it's it's existed for a while, but we really got a, a big um, big boost in 2014, when I came on, we got this joint grant between uh, New York University, uh, UC Berkeley, and UW. And we all created some version of this data science institute. And so it's a five-year grant to support what we're doing. And the goals are basically to see how we can, how we can reshape the culture of academia to take more advantage of, of data science tools, to, to train people better, to provide career paths for you know, software-focused researchers. 
Um, and so, for example, the, the job that I have right now where I what I do day to day is I spend a lot of time consulting with uh, researchers around the university, helping them figure out their data challenges. I uh, mentor students who kind of have one foot in their their home domain, their science, and one foot in like a, a data science program. And I work a lot on on maintaining the software that astronomers and other scientists use. And this is a position that's not really, it, it's, I feel like sort of a stepchild in academia because no one really understands that type of position. It doesn't fit into the... Um, doesn't fit into the model of, of graduate student postdoc faculty. So we have a number of people that are in, in a similar position to me that are, that are working on this, and it's been super fun um, to see what comes out of this and, and the kind of, kind of novel trainings and novel approaches to research that we can do. And particularly fun because it's not only happening at UW, it's happening at NYU and UC Berkeley as well, and we can, we can compare notes with those institutions and see how things are going. That sounds like such a fabulous job. Yeah, it's it's good for the time being. I mean, I I'm worrying that I'm peaking early because it's so fun. <laughs> I don't know what'll come next. <laughs> it's all downhill from here. No, no, that's really cool. Yeah. One of the things you pointed out uh, in your Pi Data talk is that every field is entering a data rich era. So there's all these biologists, sociologists. You're basically there to help support like the biologists, sociologists chemists, all the people who are, are hitting the limits of how much data they can handle. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, the, w- the way we're doing this is we have uh, a number of different ways to engage with people on campus. So one is we have these open office hours. So just like you used to go see your professor during class, we have op- office hours that are um, oriented towards researchers who, if they have a challenge, um, they can come talk to one of our people. And we have people with expertise in everything from statistics, machine learning, to software engineering, to cloud computing and scalability. Another thing we do is we run these incubator programs. So it's sort of designed uh, off, off these startup incubators that are coming from the Silicon Valley, where instead of incubating their startup idea, we're incubating their research idea and letting, letting researchers work shoulder to shoulder with a data scientist who has an expertise that complements theirs. And we also have um, uh, graduate fellowships where students are have one foot in their own department, one foot in e-science, and are taking not only, say, astronomy courses, but also database, machine learning, uh, statistics, computer science courses, and getting, uh, getting a credit on their PhD for that. Yeah, what I thought that was really fascinating is, you know, having gone through some part of a PhD program, just mm-hmm. there's so many things you've got to take and learn, and it you're so busy learning your, your specialty, right? Like biology, if that's where your PhD was, that is, it's really hard to be a, a, a good data science software type person as well. Yeah, I absolutely. Think, I think, you know, you said that these guys in this, these cohorts, they, they basically get half of their requirements for their PhD program waived yep. so that they can focus the other half on sort of complemented this with data science and programming, right? Yeah, that's, that's the idea. And then what comes with that is they get, um, they have their home department advisor, but they're also matched with a co-advisor that's uh, more methodological. And so it leads to not only the, the student growing a lot, but it leads to some interesting interdisciplinary collaborations around campus. And we've had a, a number of uh, pretty cool grants that have been awarded based on some of these partnerships. Yeah, that sounds really quite amazing. 
I, I wish that was around when I was in school. That, that's <laughs> yeah, I do too. I, I had to pick a lot of this stuff up on, on my own. It would have been nice to have something like this. Yeah. If anyone out there is listening and they're maybe in a position where they're like, oh, this is interesting. How do we do this? Right. Like another thing that I thought you pointed out was really interesting is it's in a beautiful location. And you said that that was really important. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So we, we have this data science studio um, that uh, it's, it's an old uh, library branch location on campus, and we're we're on the sixth floor of this tower with where we have the whole floor with 360 degree views looking out over Mount Rainier and the Olympic Mountains and things like this. And it's important not just so that I can have an awesome view while I'm writing code, but it's important <laughs> because we want we want people around campus to interact with each other, and so we want to be a place where people would like to come and just hang out. Um, so there, you know, it's, it's getting back to the, we call it the water cooler effect. You know, the people who were around in the sixties and seventies working on, um, working on computationally intensive science, uh, talk about the days when everyone would go to the mainframe on campus and you'd be sitting there waiting to put your punch cards in. And, uh, you know, a hydrologist would be talking to an astrophysicist and finding out that they're, they're solving the same equations with their programs. So they would, you know, have that sort of talk. And, and as the campus moved towards desktop-oriented computing, those sorts of opportunities went away. And I think we're, um, we're better off if we can have that, that sort of connection. So one of the cool things about our space here is it's a, it's a space that's open to anyone on campus for um, – for just hanging out and working, but also for scheduling meetings. So we have people from all different departments that are scheduling their group meetings here, coming in, hanging out, having coffee, and then meeting someone from the other side of campus who's solving the same differential equation in their completely different field. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, very, very nice. Like I said, I wish that existed when I was in school. <laughs> all right, so we're, we're kind of getting near the end of the show, and I have a, a couple of questions that I wanted to run by you. One is kind of almost metaphysical. Mm -hmm. So I just heard the other day that there was some study done that there was, we underestimated the number of galaxies by like a factor of 20 or something amazing, right? Yeah, I, yeah. That, that was really interesting. That, you know, already there's so many galaxies out there mm -hmm. and every galaxy has, you know, so many stars and so many planets. What do you think the chances that there's intelligent life outside the earth? Not necessarily like there's people visiting the earth, right? Just out there yeah, somewhere. Yeah. We will never meet them. That's hard to say. Um, you know, at this point, so, so one thing at UW, we have this um, astrobiology group, which sounds like a funny area of study because what are they studying, right? But, but they're working on really interesting things, combining um, what we know about biology, about geophysics, about planetary astronomy, and looking for locations around the universe where uh, life might exist. And they, so they study extremophiles around here, like organisms that live on, on deep sea vents in, in acidic boiling water environments, things like that. Um, but one thing that's come out of that group is uh, this, this notion that um, simple life, you know, microbial life, uh, probably could exist just about anywhere. And I, I tend to think that yeah, I, I would be I would be pretty surprised if we don't find some sort of microbial life elsewhere in our, our solar system. Uh, but the other thing to come out of that is we study the the dynamics of planets and things like this. Is that there are a lot of things about Earth in particular that make it very special, and a lot of uh, coincidences that uh, that are 
that, that would be hard to duplicate. You know, things like the fact that Jupiter exists uh, keeps us from having a large number of asteroid impacts on Earth. It's kind of a big shield. And, um, you know, that they'll, asteroid impacts, as, as we know from geological paleontological history, is uh, they can be pretty bad for life on Earth. So, so the, the type of stability that we have on Earth, particularly over the last uh, tens, hundreds of millions of years, I, I suspect that's rather rare, and that that makes me think that intelligent life might be rather rare. You know, I think I think the seas of Europa when we get when we get something that can burrow through the ice and look down there. I, I really hope there's something swimming around down there because yeah, it would be too. pretty cool. It would be very cool. I hope I, yeah. I hope I get to see that someday. That'd be awesome. All right, so another one. Um, my wife's a professor here at Portland State University, so I hang out with some other her colleagues and stuff and mm-hmm. one of her colleagues had this student she's teaching like a numerical methods for partial differential equations you know something mm-hmm. simple like that mm-hmm. <laughs> her, her you know she's using python and a lot of things like numpy and so on in her class for the computation and one of her students came and said hey i just i know matlab can i just use matlab why do i need to learn this python thing what would you tell that student if you got that question yeah, that's a good question. Um, so number one, I think, uh, use the tool that's most effective for your research. And for example, if you if there are programs in MATLAB that um, don't exist in Python and, and they, they're required from your re- for your research, there's no reason to learn a new tool just because it's a new tool. But on the other hand, there, there are some distinct advantages to Python. And I, I alluded to this earlier when I talked about the field of astronomy shifting from 90% IDL over the last 10 years to probably 90% Python. And the advantages uh, that I see are, number one, it's openness, right? It's, it's open and it's free. So that means uh, one thing that has come up with IDL uh, is there, there are site licenses required for every instance that you run. You know, it's a, it's a pay-to-play type of operating system or type of uh, interpreter. And so when people started running, uh, running parallelized jobs, taking advantage of all the computers in the department, there were times where a grad student would start a job and it would use all the site licenses for the entire department and research in the department ground to a halt, right? <laughs> oh, no. um, so you don't have that problem in Python because there's no site licenses with Python. So Python can be cheaper to use. Um, the other thing about it is that uh, to, to serve students well, um, you know, the, the number of academic jobs versus the number of uh, undergrad degrees or PhDs granted is extremely small. So most of our students are going to be going out into the world and working somewhere other than an academic department. And um, people in, in the outside world, in the tech world, they're much more excited about someone with Python chops than someone with IDL chops or MATLAB chops, just because that's, you know, the, the way the world is gone. So that, that's another good reason to move to Python. Um, the other thing that I love about Python is the culture of open source. So particularly now, 10 years ago it was different, but now um, just about anything you want to do in Python, you can go out there and there's somebody who has made an open source library for it, put it on a place like a GitHub or Bitbucket, and um, made it available. And, and often these libraries are really, really well done. There's just been this culture of, of well-designed open source, particularly in the scientific Python community. And it means that um, you, know, you, you can do a, a, an amazing number of things just out of the box with Python and a scientific installation. 
Yeah, what do you think that means for reproducibility? Like, I want to store this thing uh, of code, the impl- uh, interpreter, mm-hmm. maybe even like a Linux Docker image of the thing that I use to generate my paper. Yeah, that's huge. And, you know, it comes back to the in the beginning, I was telling you how I got into the Python open source world. I realized that there was, I thought it was ridiculous that I'd spent this whole summer building this tool that then no one was going to be able to use. And the the tools in, in Python for enabling that sort of reproducibility, even having like an executable paper are, are huge. And I think it's really helping science drive drive itself forward because we don't need to reinvent the wheel every time we do a new study. All right, Jake, I think that would have to leave it there for the topics, but I do have two final questions for you before I let you go. Okay. I just saw on PyPI that we passed 90,000 distinct packages. So there's, so, <laughs> there's so many amazing things you can wow. just pip install. And uh, in your field, you probably get exposed to really interesting things that maybe not everybody knows about. Tell us mm-hmm. about like one of your favorite PyPI packages that you might recommend. Well, I mentioned this earlier, but the MC uh for Markov Chain Monte Carlo, um, I think that's just an incredible package and, and allows you to do so much as far as uh, Bayesian modeling. And I, I could talk about one of my packages, but... Yeah, well, you know, it's your own packages are not off-limits. Like, <laughs> okay. AstroML is all right, you know? Yeah, so one, one that I'm working on recently, which is a lot of fun, is this uh, Altair package. And what it, what it is is a Python interface to Vega Lite. And Vega Lite is a... Uh, a visualization grammar aimed at statistical visualizations um, that basically uh, outputs interactive uh, JavaScript plots. And so we've been we've been writing this Python wrapper and trying to make a nice API to to create Vega Lite grammars and Vega Lite uh, visualizations. I'm pretty excited about this because you know there's there's so many options for plotting out there right now. There's you know, there's Matplotlib, there's Bokeh, there's Plotly, there's Holoviews, there's ggplot wrapper for Python. There's um, I'm going to miss something, and someone's going to get mad at me. Uh, Seaborn, <laughs> you know, things like that. Um, but the the one thing that that Altair that's interesting about Altair is that it interfaces to this Vega-like grammar, and that grammar I think has the has the possibility of becoming sort of a lingua franca between these various visualization packages. And the Vegalite, if, you, if you've heard of D3, which is driving a lot of interactive visualization on the web, uh, Vega and Vegalite are come out of the same research group. So it's people who really know what they're doing as far as, uh, as visualization design. Yeah, and, that's cool. That's a great pedigree. Yeah, so, you know, and I, and I get to write the, the Python classes that output this stuff, and it's pretty fun. Great. What's the package called? It's called Altair, A-L-T-A-I-R. All right. Awesome. All right. And when you write some Python code, what editor do you use? I, I go back and forth these days between Emacs and Atom. Um, I actually like the Emacs key bindings, but I like the way that Atom uh, arranges an entire project and lets you, uh, lets you see all the files. Yeah. Yeah. Those are both nice. Cool. All right. So any final call to action? I heard you had a, an announcement about your um, PhD cohorts, like 50-50 program. Yeah, yeah. So um, we, we just put out this announcement for our 
2017 PhD fellowships or postdoctoral fellowships. So um, this, this is looking for people who have recently finished their PhD, who are interested in continuing research in their own field, but also adding some sort of computational or data science element to it. And it's similar to the graduate program I described earlier. You have you apply to have one foot in your domain department, one foot in the eScience Institute with uh, with two advisors, one from the domain and one in a methodological area. And we have just a, a great set of postdocs here who are doing some um, really phenomenal work with that. And it, so if you're if you're a, a graduating PhD student in this eScience Institute or, or data science stuff sounds good, um, I'd encourage you to apply. The applications are due sometime mid-January. All right. That's plenty of time to get them in there. Cool. Yep. All right. And when's your book coming out? Um, probably, probably January, I think. Uh, I don't know at this point. It depends how 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 quickly I get this uh, <laughs> this corrected manuscript back to them. <laughs> yeah, of course. I saw that you, you can get like an early access version of it, right? Yeah, the early access is there. So if you want to take a look at the the pre release right now, you can you can go buy it, and they'll update you to the released version when it comes out. All right, sounds great. So Jake, it's been super interesting talking about astronomy with you. Thanks for coming on the show and sharing your story. Yeah, thanks for having me. You bet. Bye-bye. This has been another episode of Talk Python to Me. Today's guest has been Jake Vanderplast, and this episode has been sponsored by GoCD and Data School. Thank you both for supporting the show. GoCD is the on-premise, open-source, continuous delivery server. Want to improve your deployment workflow but keep your code and builds in-house? Check out GoCD at talkpython.fm slash gocd and take control over your process. Data School is here to help you become effective with Python's data science tools quickly. Skip years at the university. Check out the Talk Python to Me learning path at talkpython.fm slash dataschool. Are you or a colleague trying to learn Python? Have you tried books and videos that just left you bored by covering topics point by point? Well, check out my online course, Python Jumpstart by Building 10 Apps at talkpython.fm slash course to experience a more engaging way to learn Python. And if you're looking for something a little more advanced, try my Write Pythonic Code course at talkpython.fm slash pythonic. You can find the links from this episode at talkpython.fm slash episodes slash show slash 81. Be sure to subscribe to the show. Open your favorite podcatcher and search for Python. We should be right at the top. You can also find the iTunes feed at slash iTunes, Google Play feed at slash play, and direct RSS feed at slash RSS on talkpython.fm. Our theme music is Developers, Developers, Developers by Corey Smith, who goes by Smix. Corey just recently started selling his tracks on iTunes, so I recommend you check it out at talkpython.fm slash music. You can browse his tracks he has for sale on iTunes and listen to the full-length version of the theme song. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Smix, let's get out of here. Stating with my voice, there's no norm that I can feel within. Haven't been sleeping, I've been using lots of rest. I'll pass the mic back to who rocked it best.